Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. On this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him additional questions about the conglomerate of monopolies a topic we talked about in the last episode. But first, I want to dive deep into ChatGPT, the new highly controversial technology that is exploding in healthcare. You were recently quoted at length in the USA Today about the impact ChatGPT will have in healthcare. With the recent release of ChatGPT4, many listeners who are fixing healthcare podcast series have asked us to dive deep on this topic. Let's begin with your overall view of the future of generative AI. Jeremy, for over a decade, I've kept a close eye on the emergence of artificial intelligence in healthcare. I've been very cautious in my comments. Consistently, I've pointed out that despite all the hype, AI-focused startups and established tech companies alike have failed to move the needle on the nation's overall health and medical costs. Generative AI applications like ChatGPT will be different. As we talked about previously, ChatGPT was able to pass the licensing exam that physicians are required to take in order to become doctors. But you may remember that when the announcement was first made, critics pointed out that the score the technology achieved was passing, but barely. Now, two months later, a similar generative AI tool from Google not only passed the mandatory licensing exam, but scored at the 85% level. This test does require memorization of facts, but it also relies heavily on deductive reasoning. The fact that generative AI can do so well and the rate of improvement in performance, they're amazing. They reflect the similarity between the way the technology works and how humans think and answer questions. And with the new ChatGPT 4 that includes expanded video and visual capabilities, the applications of generative AI are about to explode at an even more rapid pace. Jeremy, the arms race for generative AI has begun, and regardless of which company comes out on top, we've reached a tipping point, and there's no way the genie is going back into the bottle. Can you expand on why you're so bullish on this technology? Sure, happy to do so. The first reason is less about what exists today, but instead the exponential rate at which the technology will improve. The human brain easily predicts the pace of arithmetic growth. If I give you one apple today and a second one tomorrow and so on, in seven days, we know you'll have seven apples. But we have a great difficulty understanding exponential growth. If I tell you that today I'm gonna give you one apple, and tomorrow too, and then keep doubling the number each day, you may not realize that by the end of the week, you'll have 127 apples. You may remember back early in the pandemic when we discussed the exponential growth of the virus. We used the analogy of a lily pond with each plant reproducing 
every night. We pointed out that if it took 60 days to cover a pond entirely, and we asked how much of it would be covered, let's say on day 53, most people would estimate half. But the real number is less than 1%. Applying to ChatGPT, if we assume that the power and speed of this new technology is going to follow Moore's law, that's the observation that computational progress doubles approximately every two years. If that's the case, we can expect that ChatGPT will be 30 times more powerful in a mere decade and over a thousand times more powerful in two decades. That's the equivalent of trading in your bicycle for a car and then shortly after a rocket ship. Instead of dwelling on what ChatGPT 3 or 4 can or can't do, ask yourself, what might it be able to do if it were 32 or a thousand times more capable and powerful? With vastly greater computing power, along with more data and information to draw from, future generations of ChatGPT will possess analytical and problem-solving powers that far exceed what our minds can imagine today. When it comes to healthcare, a 32 times, to say nothing of a thousand times, increase in power will enable tomorrow's technology to match and then exceed the diagnostic skills of clinicians. Let's put that into one dimension, medical knowledge. Current estimates are that the amount of medical information in the world doubles every 73 days. No human can process, incorporate, and retain all that information. But for generative AI, it's elementary. I remember when the iPhone first came out. That was only 15 years ago. My dad got one, but he kept it in the trunk of his car. He could only imagine using it if he had an automobile problem and needed to call for help. Now the smartphone, it's changed every part of our lives from how we purchase products to how we get the news, to how we navigate the roads, to how we find dating partners. It's now impossible to imagine modern life without it. I believe the same will be true for generative AI when it comes to medical care. I can see how this technology will help people write letters and do research more easily, but why will it be so powerful when it comes to healthcare? Jeremy, there are many reasons, but one is that the technology emulates the predictive process by which doctors make clinical decisions. As such, once future generations of ChatGPT become readily available, physicians will not only use it to access medical information, but they will apply it in new and ever more innovative ways. ChatGPT is a predictive tool, but no one should think of it as a crystal ball. It's more similar to maybe a Vegas odds maker. The technology can't definitively predict the winner of the World Series, but it'll do a remarkable job calculating the odds, and it'll come up with a higher and better probability estimate than almost any human can. And this ability to take known facts and apply it to new programs to create the most probable solution, that approach parallels how physicians make diagnoses and recommend treatment. As you know, GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And by pre-training, it means that it's already been loaded with terabytes of data from the internet that it can access in less than a second. And it's a transformer 
transformer. That defines the process by which the application uses hundreds of billions of parameters. These are rules that it uses to make decisions about information that's already been preloaded. And in that way, it can predict what the most likely next word or idea in a series of words or concepts should be. That sounds remarkable, but how does that correlate with what doctors do? Jeremy, these three steps are almost identical to how doctors make clinical decisions. Like ChatGPT, physicians begin with a large database. They learn it in medical school, classroom lectures, published research. The technology itself can actually incorporate far more than any human can. And I'm including not just in individuals' minds, but in the textbooks and journals in their offices. The preloading and generative AI is vastly beyond what humans can do. But next, similar to chat, GPT, when a doctor hears a person's symptoms or reads the data from a patient's medical record, the physician figures out which of the rules should be applied to the information that is sitting there. As an example, if a two-year-old child and an 80-year-old grandparent both have a cough and a fever of 103, the treating physician considers different differential diagnoses for each and most likely reaches a different conclusion and recommends a different treatment. And that's what generative AI does. The parameters that it has learned, the rules that it has learned, it applies to that preloaded database and it predicts the best diagnosis and it predicts the best treatment, just like a physician does. Do physicians use ChatGPT today? Jeremy, already many doctors I know are consulting ChatGPT in order to make sure they aren't missing diagnoses. And they'll ask the application about the most likely diagnosis and best treatment given a patient's unique characteristics. If you open a medical textbook and you look at the flow charts, the approaches recommended to treat a medical problem, they're accurate, but very general. And in that way, they're less precise than they need to be for the individual patient with those symptoms or medical problems. What's in textbooks fails to include differences relative to whether someone is 30 or 70, their health status, whether they have diabetes, and the associated social determinants of the health. Do they live in a building that is filled with mold, or do they live in a newly constructed house or apartment? ChatGPT can consider these and dozens of other factors in reaching a diagnosis recommending the additional laboratory or radiology studies needed and in prescribing a personalized treatment plan. But as we discussed, the current versions, they're not ready for full implementation. There are many limitations that future generations of the technology will need to overcome. First, the data set in both ChatGPT 3 and 4, it was only preloaded to September of 2021. As such, any published research since then isn't included. And second, unlike a doctor in the office, generative AI 
doesn't have the potential at present to ask additional probing questions to be able to expand the information considered in sorting through a differential diagnosis and, re and recommending treatment. But both sets of shortcomings, they're going to be solved in the near future. If the current version of ChatGPT already has decades of data loaded, adding an additional year's worth would take time, but it's not technically any more difficult. And relative to being able to ask questions, already Microsoft has embedded voice recognition into search using the same ChatGPT4 technology that is now available to doctors. And we know that even more sophisticated generations of ChatGPT have been developed by the company OpenAI with the ability of the application to remember what it learned from previous queries. Initially, like medical students and residents in a hospital, generative AI will make mistakes. And that's why we'll have skilled physicians to review the decisions and correct them. But similar to medical students and residents with greater experience, computing power will come to ChatGPT with increased acuity and accuracy. It's hard to imagine that over time, be it five years or 15 years, that ChatGPT won't be able to match and then surpass the predictive powers and clinical quality of medical professionals. How else will this technology improve quality outcomes? Jeremy, the medical problems that patients have today are different from the ones patients had in the last century. In the 20th century, patients suffered from acute diseases, problems like pneumonia or medical issues following trauma. But now 70% of medical problems that patients need care result from chronic diseases. And yet we continue to use the model of the old to care for patients on a periodic calendar-based schedule. We see people every three to four months. Chronic diseases, they impact patients every day. And generative AI, it will be able to assist people on a continuous basis. How can this technology accomplish that, Robbie? Jeremy, what patients with chronic disease need is daily monitoring and information on the status of the medical problems. So here are just a few of the many ways that generative AI will be able to assist patients with chronic disease. There'll be the technology will be synced with wearable devices and supportive consumer technologies like Alexa that will then provide round-the-clock monitoring and individualized daily health outcomes. It will compare the readings from home devices, glucometers, blood pressure monitors, heart monitors, against the expected ranges preset by each patient's doctor. This will create patient and physician alerts when something is wrong. If a patient has a problem, even if they saw the doctor three days ago, but it's unexpected what's happening today, the physician needs to know. On the other hand, if everything's going great and fully aligned with the game plan set in place by the individual's physician, there may be no reason to come back in three or four months. Six months might be just as good. And finally, it will remind people when it's time for the preventive screenings to refill their medications 
and to take daily exercise along with other lifestyle improvements. How about for hospitalized patients? Jeremy, for inpatients, the opportunities are equally vast. As an example, video-enabled AI in hospitals could help prevent medical errors, a leading cause of death in the United States. As you know, lapses in patient safety, especially in hospitals, kill tens of thousands of people annually, with some estimates reaching as high as 200,000 deaths each year. Scientists have defined the steps that are needed to prevent these unnecessary fatalities. Yet too often, doctors and nurses fail to follow these clearly defined evidence-based protocols, and that's what leads to avoidable complications. I don't want to scare listeners, but a recent paper published in the very prestigious New England Journal of Medicine calculated that nearly one in four individuals admitted to a hospital will experience harm, unnecessary harm during their stay. Healthcare pundits have gone so far as to recommend that hospitalized people bring a family member with them to protect them against deadly mistakes made by humans. But that won't be necessary in the future. Next generations of ChatGPT with video capability will be able to observe doctors and nurses, compare their actions to these evidence-based guidelines, and warn clinicians when they're about to commit an error. In addition, generative AI can help all doctors perform like the best. There's an art and a science to medicine. Medical students and residents learn both skills through a combination of textbooks, journal articles, classroom lectures, and the observation of skilled clinicians. Future generations of AI will follow the exact same approach. Once ChatGPT is connected to bedside patient monitors and can access laboratory data and listen to patient-physician interactions, the application will begin to predict the optimal set of clinical steps that should be followed. And each time it compares those decisions against the clinical notes and orders of the attending physician that are written or typed into the electronic health record, ChatGPT will learn and improve. The biggest difference is that a matriculating first-year medical student will need 10 years of education and training to become fully skilled. Future generations of ChatGPT, they will complete the process in weeks or less, learning from the actions of the best clinicians in hundreds of hospitals across the country. How should the availability of this technology alter medical education? Jeremy, to prepare the next generation of doctors, today's educators must break healthcare's unwritten rules and build this technology into medical school and residency training. Memorization, that was the most important skill for doctors in the last century. It just wasn't possible to carry all the medical knowledge with you, even in a 50-pound backpack. But today, doing so is easy using a smartphone, and it'll be even easier in the future through ChatGPT. Going forward, the ability to readily access information using modern technology and then figure out how to apply it to clinical practice will be far more important than rote memorization itself. Rather than viewing ChatGPT as a threat, doctors will need to recognize and accept that the best physicians in the future 
won't be able to compete with other clinicians who are using this powerful technology. Medical schools need to train matriculating students for the world that will exist a decade from now when these entering students finish medical school and residency, not teaching them how to practice like physicians in the past. And that will require embedding generative AI classes into the curriculum now. Let's shift from the opportunities of the future to the problems of today. In our last program, you talked about the conglomerate of monopolies and the lack of innovation that it has caused for the hospital and the drug industry. Do you see the same type of problem happening when it comes to physicians? Jeremy, doctors are drowning in a sea of paperwork and patient visits. Many of those bureaucratic tasks have been the result of increasing demands foisted on them by insurers and hospital administrators. With less time spent taking care of people and more time spent tending to administrative tasks, physicians are experiencing greater stress, and I mean both financially and psychologically. And they're having a dramatic increase in burnout and decrease in satisfaction. That's according to research published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. These troubling trends for doctors have spelled opportunity for private equity firms. Private equity entered the healthcare picture a little over a decade ago. What we saw from 2013 to 2016 was private equity firms acquiring 355 physician practices, many of which had hundreds of doctors. In the four years that followed, private equity acquired 578 additional physician practices, and those numbers are continuing to grow. How does this relation work between private equity and doctors? Jeremy, to doctors, private equity firms offer an attractive value proposition. They promise to ease physician dissatisfaction by increasing income and reducing insurance hassles. In exchange, physicians agree to relinquish significant control of their practice. Once the deal is done, private equity firms leverage that control to generate sizable profits. They do so by driving down costs through draconian cuts to support staff and or swapping out physicians for less expensive clinicians like nurse practitioners. And they pressure clinicians to provide more and often unnecessary medical care or to game the insurance coding system to maximize revenue. Over time, as more doctors from a particular specialty and or the community join up private equity firms gain local monopolistic market control. And when this happens, they can raise prices on behalf of physicians, knowing full well that insurers will have no choice but to agree. The goal for private equity is to exit the market in three to five years, selling the medical group to an even larger private equity firm at a huge profit. Only time will tell Jeremy whether this Faustian bargain becomes the physician's salvation or a nightmare for the profession. Can you give some examples of how this process works today? Sure, Jeremy. Let's begin with the emergency rooms. Researchers estimate that 25 to 40% of ERs are now staffed by private equity companies. And Vision Healthcare, a nationwide hospital-based physician group, is one of them. Owned by private equity powerhouse KKR, the company employs 25,000 clinicians and staff and in an estimated one in 12 emergency departments. 
private equity loves emergency services for several reasons. First, nearly all emergent care is essential and rarely requires any prior authorization from insurance companies. And second, patients usually go to the nearest facility, whether the ER is in-network or not. For PE firms, the big money is in out-of-network billing. You may remember that prior to the passage of the No Surprises Act, private equity firms routinely rejected insurance contracts. And in that way, they had the right to charge exorbitant out-of-network prices for ER services. Under the recently passed new law, arbitration usually limits out-of-network charges, making this tactic less lucrative. But PE isn't giving up the fight. To restore monopolistic billing practices of the past, medical associations, in conjunction with private equity, successfully sued in Texas to halt implementation of the law, at least for now. Their winning argument was that HHS, the Health and Human Services guidance on arbitration, unfairly benefited insurers at the expense of doctors. While this issue resolves in court, private equity continues to drive profitability by other means. The latest tactic involves urging ER physicians to overtest and overtreat patients, prioritizing the priciest of services. A recent study concluded that, quote, high intensity billing for emergency services had gone up 400% in the past 15 years. Similarly, in hospital-based departments like anesthesia, radiology, and pathology, in these departments, doctors are contracting with private equity firms to boost prices and drive physician incomes up. Doctors, along with their private equity representatives, start by negotiating exclusive contracts with the hospital to provide all the clinical services that patients will need. And then having gained that exclusivity, they can demand, and they almost always receive higher per case rates that are now averaging 25% more than in hospitals without physicians and private equity working together in this type of exclusive way. How about a couple more examples, Robbie? Jeremy, when private equity signs up solo doctors, it acquires anywhere from 30% to 100% of their practice. A typical purchase price, it's around 15 times the doctor's annual income adjusted for the percentage of practice they'll own. For private equity firms, a lower percentage requires less money and ensures that the doctor keeps skin in the game. The higher the number, that allows them to seize complete practice control and monopolize the market, assuming the private equity company can attract all the community doctors in that specialty. Most recently, private equity has focused on single surgical or medical specialties, orthopedics, GI. They've realized that by bringing all the doctors in a community together into a single specialty group, they can force insurers to include all of these physicians in their network, and they can force them to include the facilities and services they provide colonoscopy suites, and physical therapists doing physical therapy. Doing this allows rates to skyrocket for procedures and outpatient treatments, 
even when in the same community, there are far less expensive local alternatives. A final example of this process by which private equity and physicians work together is specific to surgery centers. These are medical facilities that perform surgery on an outpatient basis. The key to turning them into highly profitable private equity investments is to recruit a cadre of surgeon investors and then promise them strong returns based on facility fees. Private equity owners count on surgeons to find patients with the right insurance. These would be insurance plans featuring high prices for outpatient procedures, but even better insurance plans that allow patients the option to go out of network. To get ahead of this problem of patients choosing expensive places for their procedures, insurers have built caveats into their health plan contracts. For example, they might require a member of the health plan to pay 25% of the facility fee. And that will make sense and work for the insurer if the in-network price, let's say, is $3,000 and the outside price is $4,000. Think about what happens when a surgical center prices the same procedure, not at $4,000, but at $40,000. Theoretically, the insurer would have to shoulder $30,000, but the patient would also have to contribute $10,000. And the only way patients would agree to such an outrageous fee is if the surgical center offered to waive the copayment. And in that scenario, the individual pays nothing, but the surgical center and its private equity owners profit massively by billing the insurance company 10 times the usual rate. This all sounds very lucrative. Why has the private equity not been able to make even broader inroads? Jeremy, two factors have stood in the way. First, doctors recognize that signing on with private equity often proves harmful to patients. Physicians don't want to order tests or provide treatments that add no clinical value or worse, could lead to complications. Further, they're concerned about generating bills that would force families to make high out-of-pocket payments. Researchers have found that private equity-acquired medical practices charge 20% more per insurance claim than independent physicians. And these higher prices come at a time when 40% of Americans fear they won't be able to afford medical care in the coming year. Second, doctors are trained in a medical culture that values autonomy. They're reluctant to cede authority to anyone. Although physicians dislike the prior authorization processes imposed by insurers today, they're equally wary of trusting for-profit private equity firms. It's obvious why hospital systems, pharmaceutical companies, and private equity investors pursue market control. It's easy to see when they would prefer to raise profits rather than innovate and try to make medical care more efficient and effective. My question is, why insurers with comparable market power and influence haven't taken on these monopolies or reined in exorbitant healthcare prices? I welcome your thoughts, Robbie. Jeremy, I concur that the insurance industry has the clout to drive industry-wide improvements in quality, cost, and access. 
Of the 300 million insured Americans, more than half, 169 million, are covered by one of what is called the Big Five. There's United Health Group, there's Anthem, now called Elevance, Aetna, Cigna, and Humana. Private insurance is a $1.2 trillion a year industry, and it accounts for 30% of all healthcare spending. Make no mistake, insurance companies know how to assert control. Ask practicing physicians about their experience with the big five, and they'll passionately criticize the prior authorization process, which requires that insurance companies approve in advance nearly all expensive medical tests, treatments, and procedures. And in communities with multiple hospitals, insurers often pit one against the other to keep daily rates down. That's why in recent years, hundreds of hospitals have been forced to file for bankruptcy, particularly in underserved and rural areas. But overall, insurers appear to be pulling the punches. Insurers recognize that attempting to drive down high prices, whether resulting from hospital consolidation, private equity investments in physician groups, or the failure of the government to regulate drug pricing, that would result in industry-wide resistance. And despite their size, there are restrictions on insurers' power. As an example, state and federal laws require insurers to offer in-network doctors and hospitals within 15 miles or 30 minutes of where the enrollees live or work. As such, it does little good from a negotiating standpoint to secure great rates and threaten to send patients to a hospital or a physician group that's 50 miles away. But as you say, even when there are opportunities to rein in prices on behalf of patients, insurers usually prefer to simply accept the status quo. So let's dive deeper, Robbie, and unpack the reasons why. To begin, Jeremy, listeners need to understand that there are actually two different insurance models that insurers use to help employees pay for the 160. To begin, Jeremy, listeners need to understand that there are actually two different insurance models that insurers use to help employers pay for the 160 million Americans who are covered through their work. But in neither case do insurers actually manage medical care or optimize performance. The first model is what people traditionally think of as health insurance. It uses an actuarial approach. An insurer employs actuaries to calculate how much medical care is likely to cost for the employees at our company, it's based upon their age and the diseases and the past history. And then the insurer prices the premium accordingly and adds six to 8% profit on top of that. In this first model, the insurer is at risk if an error in calculation is made. As such, insurers prefer to drive up the price of healthcare coverage rather than risk being underpriced. Having set the price on an actuarial basis, the insurer rarely intervenes to drive better outcomes or make the provision of medical care more efficient. This approach is akin to a home insurer who sells fire coverage, but rarely inspects the house or mandates safety upgrades to the furnace, stove, and hot water heater. 
who offering coverage through this model insurers accept at the cost will rise year over after year after year. But as long as they can price accordingly, they can minimize their risk and maximize their profits. Of course, if insurance prices rise too fast for individuals or businesses to afford, then the insurer risks losing customers to a less expensive competitor. However, this is not as big of a threat as one might think. And that's because the big five have taken every opportunity to purchase competitors, consolidate power, and achieve monopolistic control. The result, 75% of US markets today are highly concentrated with one insurance company dominating. Is that the only reason why they've allowed their prices to raise at twice the rate of overall inflation over the past several decades? Jeremy, no, there's another reason that higher healthcare costs benefit insurers. The Affordable Care Act includes what is called the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule states that insurance companies must spend at least 80% of the money they take in from premiums on healthcare costs and quality improvement activities. And actually it's 85% when they're selling insurance to large employers. The other 15 or 20% can go to administrative overhead and marketing, and of course, profit. Under the law, if the insurance company fails to meet this 80% threshold, employees get a rebate for part of the premium. So to adhere to this rule, insurers are then forced to lower premiums. And when they do that and apply that same 80-20 rule, it lowers the maximum profit they can earn. On the other hand, when medical costs go up, insurance companies have the freedom to charge even higher premium prices and earn even greater profits. So think about it. As an insurer working under these rules, how aggressively would you be to innovate and lower medical costs when these efforts would cut into your profits? What is the second way insurers work with businesses? In addition to offering what I think of as traditional insurance, companies are turning to self-funding rather than purchasing an insurance plan for their employees. Self-funding requires employers to assume the financial risk for providing healthcare benefits to workers. And they do this for several reasons. One is that companies want to have more details about the healthcare needs of their employees overall. Although it's illegal for employers to collect medical information about individual workers, they believe aggregate health data at the company level will allow them to customize health benefits and lower their overall medical costs compared to buying a standard policy from an insurer. And the other reason to self-fund is what's called the float. With usual insurance contracts, businesses must cut a large premium check at the start of each month to pay for the future medical care of their employees. But self-funded businesses, they don't have to do that. They usually receive the bill for the care that already has been provided by doctors and hospitals months after the care. And then they don't have to pay those bills for another 60 days. This lag, which is often six months or more, means that businesses can retain the cash and either invest it or use it to fund capital projects. Then why do these self-funded businesses need insurers at all? Jeremy, providing healthcare coverage is complex with many legal requirements. Few businesses have the expertise 
or industry connections needed to contract with medical professionals, complete regulatory requirements, and implement the necessary IT and data analytics systems. To fill these gaps, businesses hire either an ASO, which is an administrative services organization, or a TPA, a third-party administrator, to perform these functions. Insurance companies are happy to play these roles for self-funded businesses, and in return, insurers receive a percentage, usually in about the 10% range, of the total dollars paid for medical bills. Obviously, being a TPA or ASO generates less revenue than being a health insurer, but this function is no less profitable, and it's far less risky. And once again, the higher the cost of care provided, the more the insurer earns. If employee medical costs cost um, total, let's say, $10 million, the ASO's 10% fee would be $1 million. But when the costs rise and now healthcare costs $15 million, the insurer receives an additional $500,000. As such, when total expenses rise, insurers make more money, not less. This whole process seems so inefficient. Has it been beneficial to insurers? Jeremy, you're right. It's inefficient and it doesn't make sense. It might seem to the outside world that the best path to profitability for private insurers would be to drive down medical expenses. The less insurers have to pay doctors and hospitals, the more they theoretically would pocket as profit. And that's how it all would work if it weren't for the monopolistic control that insurers exert. But for the reasons we've discussed, insurers do just as well with less hassle when costs and premiums rise. In the end, insurers know that going to war with other industry giants is daunting, and they usually decide that doing so isn't worth the effort. The current system has proven financially beneficial for the insurance industry. Over the past decade, profits and stock prices for the largest insurers have risen at a rate comparable to technology companies. And an industry of comfortable profits, implementing innovative solutions that could produce higher quality and lower costs, have been ignored. At this point, insurers see the current system as appropriate, if not optimal. From that perspective, if it isn't broken, why fix it? What's less clear is why the same inertia exists among the people who ultimately pay the bill. These are America's businesses and the government. You might think the buck stops with them, but once again, as you'll see, it doesn't. The reasons why are equally complex as they are when it comes to insurers, but it's equally vital for listeners to understand. Jeremy, let's focus on this conundrum in our next Diving Deep episode. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast that's posted each Tuesday night. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.